If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The terrorists in the building now realise that a rescue operation is underway. What are they going to do? The assumption from Mookie, and frankly pretty much everyone else in those cars at this stage, is that all the hostages in the building will be killed. That was Saul David talking about the 1976 raid on Entebbe. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week is due to see the UK release of the film Entebbe, which was named Seven Days in Entebbe in the US. It tells the dramatic story of the 1976 hijacking of an Air France plane, containing dozens of Israeli passengers, by a splinter group of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and two German terrorists who had connections with, but were not part of, the left-wing West German militant organisation known as the Bader-Meinhof Group. The hijackers flew the plane to Entebbe Airport in Uganda where Israeli forces mounted a spectacular rescue attempt. Historian Saul David has written a book about the Entebbe raid, and he's also consulted on the new film. He dropped by our Bristol offices recently to describe the events of 1976 and to share his experiences of advising on the film. Firstly, Saul, could we begin with the actual hijacking itself? So when and where did this take place and who were these hijackers? Well, the hijack took place shortly after a France Airbus had taken off from Athens Airport. But the key bit of the story is the fact that the Airbus had actually started in Tel Aviv in Israel. So on the plane are a lot of Israelis, a lot of French, of course, because it was was a French Airbus heading for Paris. uh, And then a mixture of other nationalities, something like 30 different nationalities, just like you get on any international flight. But it was only as the plane was leaving Athens that the hijackers struck. There were four of them, two Germans and two Palestinians. 
And uh, the fact that they struck just after it left Athens was not a coincidence because they had identified that security at Athens was lax. That is where they had transferred from another flight. That was the real weak point in the security. If you were a transit passenger, you could come in from the Middle East like they had, and then more easily in terms of your bags being checked, get onto a new flight. And in fact, it was quite laughable that as they got on, well, laughable in a, in a kind of, um, you know, gallows humor type way, when they actually got on the flight, some of the passengers passengers noticed that they had big bags, bulging bags, and, were, and were, were genuinely worried even before anything had happened. And indeed, in those bags, they carried their weapons, both uh, pistols, scorpion um, machine pistols, and also grenades. And it's pretty astonishing to think today, isn't it, that actually they were able to literally just walk on with this in their hand baggage. And so I guess they, they came onto the plane, they went into the cockpit, told the pilot, you have to fly we want you to fly. Was there any kind of violence at that stage? Or was it the fact they had all these weapons meant they could do what they wanted? Exactly. There was a lot of threat of violence, but no actual violence used. Well, they they pistol whipped someone at one point. I mean, if you didn't do what they wanted you to do, they were going to use, they were quite aggressive. They were shouting a lot. Of course, in a hostage-taking situation, the terrorists are trained to be very aggressive to begin with, to, to cow everyone, to, to get everyone to agree to what you want to do. Of course, this is prior to the days when the uh, cabins were locked, so it was easy for them to just go straight into the cabin, put a gun to the head of the pilot and say, you're heading in the direction I want you to head. And that was it. The plane was taken over literally in a matter of seconds. It's interesting you said, so some of them were Palestinian, some of them were German. That it's quite an unusual combination. What, what were they what were their aims? What were their motivations? And how did these two nationalities come together? Well, the Palestinian aims are reasonably straightforward. They were part of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, actually a splinter group of that organisation. But, you know, as the name suggests, the, these were people who were using violence against the Israeli state. They wanted to overturn the creation of Israel and return to a unified Palestine. The other group are, are more unusual. They were part of a, a, a German extreme left-wing organization called the Revolutionary Cells. Very similar to the Bader-Meinhof. They had a lot of friends and colleagues in the Bader-Meinhof, but they weren't Bader-Meinhof themselves. There is actually often a confusion in some of the books that they're described as Bader-Meinhof. But interestingly enough, because most of the senior people in the Bader-Meinhof were now in prison, one of their aims was to get them out of prison. Their fellow German extreme left-wing terrorists were in prison and they wanted to get them out. So both the Palestinians and the Germans on this plane, ultimately, when the demands were issued, would demand the release of terrorists in a number of separate countries, Israel, Germany, France, Kenya and Switzerland. And so clearly the history between Jewish people and Germans is Everyone knows what happened, you know, only 30 years before this story taken place. Was that on the minds of these German hijackers at all? Or did that relate to them in any way? It wasn't prior to the hijacking, but it certainly became on their minds during the course of the week that they remained in Entebbe Airport as they were making their demands, because a number of the passengers, some of whom were actual uh, death camp survivors, uh, made that point. How on earth can Germans be ordering Jews and threatening Jews' lives, given the context of the Holocaust? Um, now, what's ironic about the German terrorists is actually one of the reasons they had become so radicalized was a conviction that in Germany at this time, in the 1970s, a number of people were still in positions of authority in business and security and politicians who were ex-Nazis. So they were very definitely anti-Nazi, but at the same time, they were anti-Israel or put it another way, pro-Palestine. And of course, there is a slight contradiction in terms of these 
two positions that would eventually play itself out during the course of the week they were at Entebbe Airport in Uganda. So they ended up in Uganda, and this was not by coincidence. They they had some kind of deal with Idi Amin. So what was the situation there and what was the role of the Ugandan government? Well, the Ugandan government, headed, of course, by the dictator Idi Amin, had been very friendly towards Israel only a few years earlier. But everything had turned on the fact that Idi Amin kept demanding more and more military hardware from the Israelis, some of which they gave him. But when he started asking for things like planes, they said no. And of course, the reason they said no is, well, one, they didn't want to hand them over per se. But secondly, a lot of their hardware at this stage had come from the Americans. And the Americans absolutely would not have wanted their their planes to be handed on to a very unstable African dictator. So when he didn't get what he wanted from the Israelis, he turned full circle towards the Palestinians and also the Palestinians' backers in the context of the Cold War, which meant, of course, the Russians and various other interested parties, the Saudi Arabians uh, and the Egyptians, basically anyone who was an enemy of Israel now became a friend of Idi Amin. And what he's really hoping to achieve, he tries to pretend during the week-long hostage-taking saga that actually he's an honest broker. They've just landed by, you know, by, by coincidence, as it were, He let them land for humanitarian reasons, and now he's going to try and broker a peace deal. In truth, he was in league with the Palestinians and the Germans from the word go. And the reason I know this is because I tracked down one of the uh, Germans' fellow terrorists who told me that that was the case, and that it was planned that he would appear to be helping the negotiations. But of course, all along, he was in league with the Palestinians. And the assumption was... Uganda's so far away from Israel, there's nothing Israel can do about this, and they eventually will have to concede uh, the release of 40 terrorists and another 12 from those separate countries. And this this shows an incredible amount of pre-planning and organisation from this terrorist cell, that they actually had worked, had got a government of an African country on board. I mean, they were quite a sophisticated operation in that case. Yes, the PFLP run by Wadi Haddad were, were the most sophisticated plane hijackers uh, in the world at that time. And there was a lot of it going down. And Wadi Haddad actually had been the original architect of plane hijacking in the late uh, 1960s. It was he who suggested that this was a means of putting extreme pressure on Israel on the one hand and getting massive publicity for their cause on the other. And it had, in fact, been quite successful. A number of hijacks had taken place in which Israel had been forced to release terrorists in Israeli jails. So they weren't, you know, whistling in the wind on this one. And the fact that they chose Uganda was an almost a guarantee from them that this would work because never before in the history of the Israeli defense forces had Israeli troops ever operated outside the Middle East. And so if they're going to do anything about Entebbe, they're going to have to operate an awful long way from home. And neither Idi Amin nor the terrorists had any conviction or assumption that they would do that in this case, in which case, sooner or later, they may have to wait a few days, but sooner or later, Israel was going to have to cave in. Am I right to say that when they got to Entebbe, that not all the hostages were, were still on board and that actually some, some hostages and crew had been released? Well, one had been released because the initial destination of the plane after the hijacking was Benghazi, then under the control of, of the Libyan dictator Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi. And they went there because they knew that they would receive a you know sort of relatively friendly welcome. In fact, it seems that Gaddafi wasn't expecting them, but certainly he was, he was very uh, sympathetic to their cause. Uh, and therefore the planes were refuelled. They needed to be refuelled because ultimately they've got to get all the way down to Uganda. And that was too far for the original Airbus um, that had taken off from 
Athens to get in one go. So it needed to refuel at Benghazi, but the plan all along was was to get to uh, Entebbe. Now in Benghazi, uh, a British-born woman who was who was then living in Israel decided that she wanted to get off the plane, and the way she managed it is by kidding the hijackers that she was having a miscarriage, you know, pretending that she was having a miscarriage. In fact, kidding them, she was pregnant. She wasn't even pregnant. Um, And the reason she was prepared to take such a risk, because it could have gone horribly wrong, was because her mother had just died and she was desperate to get back to Manchester for her funeral. So that was the first drama. She pulled it off. And she was the first one who actually got off the plane and was able to give information first to the British Secret Service and then, of course, to Israeli Secret Service, the the Mossad, about the identity of some of the people on board the plane. And so um, when did the Israeli government first find out that this hijacking had taken place and what were their initial reactions, what was their initial thoughts about what to do? Well, they found out the same day, which is the Sunday, the 27th of June, um, uh, even while the plane actually was on its way to Benghazi. And then, then of course, they got confirmation when the plane was in, on the tarmac of Benghazi. And then they realised the plane had taken off from Benghazi and they thought it was coming back to Israel. So they they got their, their special forces to prepare, you know, an operation that might mean that they were going to have to tackle the plane on the ground in Israel, which had, in fact, happened a couple of years earlier. But they then, of course, very quickly realised that it had gone to Entebbe. Now, at this stage, they knew that the next likely scenario is issuing of demand. So they're beginning to discuss what they might have to concede, whether they would concede. Uh, and really, the stopping point for the Israeli government at this point, and in fact, all the way through the week, is we will negotiate if there is no military option. And a military option uh, is only feasible if the head of the IDF, Motagur, says it's a go. My people have, have looked at it, they've planned it, we've got a possible operation in hand, and we can recommend it to the politicians. Without that recommendation, they will negotiate. So that's their position at the beginning of the week. And so they did take the military option. So could you give us an idea of what was the plan for rescuing the hostages? Well, there were various plans, actually, that were suggested throughout the week, and some of them were pretty harebrained, actually. I mean, for example, at one stage, they thought, well, um, this is before they knew the Ugandans were in league with the terrorists. And, you know, that was a reasonable assumption to make. They've just pitched up in Uganda. The Ugandans have just have surrounded the plane, but they're not actually helping the terrorists. That, that was a reasonable assumption to make. And so at this point, they're thinking, all we need to do is get to the terminal building and kill the terrorists. We don't actually have to penetrate through the outer cordon of Ugandan troops. And so their plan was that they were going to drop commandos with inflatables into Lake Victoria, which abuts on the airport, and then they would just get on to dry land and and carry out the assault. But of course, what they hadn't uh, taken into account is the fact that by dropping Zodiacs from such a height, they're liable to burst on the sea. And that's exactly what happened when they they did a dry run outside Tel Aviv. So there were these various plans, none of which, frankly, uh, looked likely that likely to have much chance of succeeding. But when they got information from some hostages who were released during the week-long saga and then went back to Paris, these were the non-Israelis, went back to Paris and gave information to uh, the Mossad and various military intelligence officials for the Israelis that actually the Ugandans were in league with them. They realised not only do we have to kill the terrorists, but we've also got to deal with the Ugandans. So now we need a bigger force. And we don't just need a force that's going to go in there, kill the terrorists, and then we're going to be allowed to leave. We've got to fight our way in and fight our way out. So you actually need to land, physically land planes. And there's only one plane that has the range 
to get that far. And that is the uh, Hercules transport, which has been provided, another plane that's been provided by America. So they quickly do the sums and they realize, okay, the Hercules can get there. We've got to land it quietly. We've got to land it in secrecy, but we've also got to get off in the same plane and have enough fuel to get back. And that was the problem. The planes had enough fuel to get there. And then for about an hour's flying time afterwards, actually Israel is an eight hours from Uganda. So what are you going to do now? We need to solve the refueling problem. And so I guess another issue would be at this point, the issue of risk. So, you know, they've got two options. They can either negotiate or they can take this military action. And there you've got risk, obviously, to Israeli soldiers. You've got risk to the hostages. How did the Israeli government weigh all those things up? It's very interesting. A lot of discussion about risk. Um, In fact, it was all about risk. Uh, Is there a reasonable chance of this operation succeeding? That's what the military asked themselves. And when they decided that there was, they then passed on the plan to the politicians and they they had to make that calculation. And it's interesting that Prime Minister Rabin finally came to the decision, and we know this because he told his advisor on the morning of the operation, that if fewer than 20 people were killed, that would be seen to be a success. But more... And then the operation would would have been, in effect, a failure. So he was prepared to lose the lives of up to 20 Israeli citizens, probably hostages, but also soldiers. And that will tell you that this kind of trade-off in bodies, and that, that, by the way, was roughly 20% of the total number of hostages, will give you a sense of the kind of uh, success-failure mindset of the Israelis at that time. It sounds quite cold-blooded, doesn't it? But they had been put in a very tricky situation. And I, and I suppose their counter-argument is that if we negotiate this time, there'll be another hijacking, another... So so if the military option can be made to work, there's a logic to that. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, Perez, interestingly enough, who was the defence minister at that time, Shimon Perez, technically a member of the same government of Rabin, but de- very definitely a political rival's argument was, was very different. He said that the Israelis should go in with a military operation, whether it succeeds or fails, because you have to send out a signal to the terrorists that we will not negotiate. Now, interestingly enough, nowhere else in the world really held that position at that time. The British and the Americans would shortly hold that position, partly as a result of the Entebbe raid. But the Israeli government did not at that time. Perez was really on his own, although he got some support, interestingly enough, during the week from Kissinger, who said he's absolutely right. But the typical position held by the Israelis at this point, and in fact, a position they still hold today, is we will go in if there's a good chance a military operation can succeed. If there's no chance, we'll negotiate. And and we can see even more recently, various mass releases of terrorists as a result of hostage-taking of Israelis. If they don't think they can rescue them with a military solution, they will let terrorists go. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And you referred earlier to the problem that the Israeli plane couldn't get there and back on, on the fuel that it had. So how did they get around that problem in the end? Well, very interesting, a very clever solution. Technically, Israel had no friends in Africa at this time. After the Yom Kippur War, the Organization of African Unity basically blacklisted Israel and uh, diplomatic relations with all its members, and that is pretty much the whole of the continent, were broken off. Uh, but one country retained unofficial security links with Israel at that time and still does to this day, and that is Kenya. And Kenya's security chief, or at least the man effectively in charge of security, a man called Charles Njonjo, who was the attorney general, but his power spread across all the security networks, actually was very pro-Israel at this time. And it was he in his house in Nairobi that brokered a secret deal with the Israelis to actually let them refuel at Nairobi airport. It was all going to be secret. They were going to seal off a part of the uh, airport. And and that in return for this refueling and making the operation possible, he wanted not only the destruction of Idi Amin's air force, which was more powerful than the Kenyan air force, and there was a lot of tension between the two countries at that time, but also, if possible, as Njonjo told me in the first time he's ever gone on record about this deal, that he hoped the Israelis would kill Idi Amin himself, assassinate Idi Amin. So that was the deal done. And actually, that was the deal that was actually um, carried out. Amin wasn't killed because he wasn't in the airport at the time of the raid. But the Israelis did indeed destroy Idi Amin's air force. And so, as we know, they did, of course, conduct this raid. And they did arrive in their plane at the cover of darkness. And one of the key figures in this story is Yoni Netanyahu, the brother of current Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And his part in this whole story is quite controversial. So could you perhaps tell us a little bit about what happened to him? Well, Yoni was uh, in charge of the uh, Sayeret Matkal, otherwise known as the unit, which is the special force group that's going to actually carry out the raid on the terminal building. So these are the best of the best in Israel. Their motto is the same as the SAS, who dares wins. They're trained on very similar lines. But at this stage, they were the finest counter-terrorist operators in the world. Um, In fact, Britain's counter-terrorist capability had only just begun, only just begun a couple of years earlier. So The unit led by Yoni is going to carry out the operation. Now, what had happened during the course of the week is that Yoni isn't actually present in uh, Tel Aviv during most of the discussions and the planning stage. He's he's with some of his men on an operation in the Sinai. And so he misses the crucial planning stage. And when he comes back, because it's his unit that's going to carry it out, he very much wants to take command. The original plan is he will not go in, but he puts up such a fuss that the military high command say, okay, fair enough, it's his unit, we've got to let him go. But there were already slight concerns about the fact that he was nearing burnout. He's been on a lot of operations. He's one of the unknown, albeit, but he's one of the great heroes, you know, a soldier who'd been on many, many, many different operations. But there's a feeling maybe, maybe he's just been on one too many. Nevertheless, they let him go, probably because they feel they have to. And and maybe even a sense that the morale of the men might have suffered if Yoni wasn't allowed to go on this operation. So he is allowed to go. But he does make two or three key uh, mistakes, both in the fine tuning of the planning when he decides not to send troops up the control tower, which has a 
kind of field of fire that's right next to the terminal building where the hostages are being uh, held and has a field of fire over the front of, of the building. Now, of course, if you don't neutralise that position, there's a danger if if there's not an immediately successful raid on the building that people are going to be shot at from, from that vantage point, including hostages, which almost happened, actually. But the other key mistake he makes is that the plan is to use a Mercedes and two Jeeps. They're going to fly them in in the Hercules and they're going to pretend to be Ugandans. Now, the agreement was particularly uh, made by probably the most experienced soldier uh, in the Israeli Special Forces at this time, a man called Muki Betzer, who was Yoni's deputy. Muki was involved in all the planning, and Muki was very much of the opinion that if the Ugandans are kidded that we're, you know, senior Ugandan uh, officer and, and his escort, uh, they won't fire at us. Therefore, you stop at nothing. Even if you see a sentry, you just go past him. Because, of course, the key point is you've got to get to the terminal building and neutralise the terrorists before they start killing the hostages. You cannot lose the element of surprise. You cannot have live firing. Um, so he's told Yoni, and everyone's agreed that that's the plan. But for some reason, a reason we will never know for sure, when they're actually driving up the tarmac, having landed successfully, unnoticed, uh, they're driving up the tarmac towards the terminal building and they spot these sentries, Yoni decides, in fact, he gives the order to the driver to veer close towards one of the sentries so that he can shoot him with a silenced pistol. Now, of course, the risk is is he actually going to kill him with the silence pistol? And in fact, any, in any case, there are two sentries, one of whom is just kind of like slightly off to the side. So it makes, frankly, no sense to me um, why he would choose to do this. And as he gave the order, Muki, who was in the Mercedes with him, said, please don't, Yoni, leave him. Just let's get to the terminal building. He doesn't leave him. He shoots at him, as does one of his other soldiers in the seat behind. And they seem to hit the Ugandan sentry and he falls to the tarmac and everyone breathes a sigh of relief, but he's not dead. He gets back up. Now they've tried to kill him. Now he knows they're hostile and he's going to open fire. And before he does, some of the soldiers in the jeep behind who do not have silenced weapons shoot him. And at this point, well before they've got to the terminal building, the element of surprise is lost and the terrorists who will quickly realise this because a massive firefight breaks out because the Ugandans on the roof of the building are now firing at the uh, vehicles. Massive firefights broken out. The terrorists in the building now realise that uh, a rescue operation is underway. What are they going to do? The assumption from Muki, and frankly pretty much everyone else in those cars at this stage, is that all the hostages in the building will be killed. Or at least they're going to start killing them and there's going to be a massive loss of life. You've got a 100 people, men, women and children, sitting on the floor, well, lying on the floor. They were supposed to be asleep because this, this operation has taken place at midnight when they hope everyone's going to be asleep. And they're all packed in very tightly. You only need a few grenades and you, and it's going to be a massive loss of life. I think that's one of the most interesting parts of this story is the fact that it's supposed to be a surprise attack, but the terrorists get advance notice that there's something's going on and they can probably guess that someone is coming to try and get free the hostages and it, in all likelihood kill them. But they don't then. They had the opportunity to kill, you know, potentially tens of people at this point. They don't do that. So first, we're interested to know why you think that was. And also, does that tell us something about the way that terrorism has changed since then? Yes, I think I think it has changed. Um, of course, we I can't talk for all terrorists today, and there may be a few idealists like they were in the 1970s. But the Germans in particular on this operation were idealists. They, they wanted to create a different world, a better world, a better Germany. 
Um, they were very anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-Israel. You know, they, there were a lot of things they were anti. What they were actually for, we're not uh, as certain. But in any case, what we do realize from the denouement of the Entebbe operation is they weren't murderers. And it's interesting, uh, and I use that term advisedly, given that they were terrorists and they were prepared to use at least the threat of violence to achieve political aims. When it actually came down to it, when frankly all bets are off and they're going to die anyway, are they prepared? prepared to kill innocent women and children? The reality was no. Why was that so? Well, we'll never know for sure, of course, because all of them died. Uh, But what we can speculate uh, on is a number of conversations that were had between the Germans in particular and the hostages during the course of the week, in which the hostages say, why are you here? This whole German-Jew thing is madness. What's going on? And they said, we're idealists, we're not murderers. And they made this point a number of times. And actually, I spoke to uh, one of the comrades of the of the terrorists, who told me exactly the same thing. They'd gone there to achieve specific aims, which is the release of, of prisoners in Germany. Were they prepared to murder, particularly when they weren't going to get those aims? Uh, the reality was no. Now, you could ask the question, Rob, if you're really going to delve deeply into this, would they have been prepared to kill one or two hostages early in the week to persuade the Israelis that they were serious? Possibly. I'd probably go further than that and say probably. But are they prepared to murder people when they're probably going to die anyway? Interestingly enough, no. That, that is a really interesting point. I mean, obviously, we, we should qualify by saying they put a lot of innocent people's lives at risk, you know, completely unnecessarily from, from those people's point of view. But there is still an interesting difference between, I think, terrorism nowadays, even what you were saying before about letting somebody off the plane who claimed to have had a miscarriage. Again, you just can't see that happening nowadays at all. No, you need to see this in, in, in the broadest possible context. They were prepared to use violence. Uh, people did lose their lives as a result of this operation, which had, of course, been directly caused by their decision to carry out the hijacking in the first place. Not all the hostages got back home because some of them were actually killed by Israeli bullets, friendly fire. It was incredible bad luck. But the point being in a, in a hostage rescue operation, the, the troops are pretty ruthless. If they're uncertain about anyone being a terrorist, they will kill them because the terrorists, of course, then have an opportunity, you don't kill them immediately, to kill hostages. So four uh, hostages lose their lives. So we know that people lost their lives as a result of this operation. A number of Ugandan soldiers were killed by the Israelis in an attempt to get to the building and secure the building. And again, they lost their lives. And, you you know, their lives must be put at the door of the people who decided to go on this operation in the first place. But that they would be prepared to carry out murder when there was really, frankly, nothing to gain by it, apart from publicity. No, it's interesting. They were not. And in that sense, certainly when you talk about uh, the more extreme Islamic terrorism of today, things have very much changed for the worst. And so, as you indicated, the um, Israeli commandos, they got into the building, they killed all, all of the terrorists. And then I think three or four hostages were also killed. And Yoni Netanyahu was killed as well. So could you explain what happened to him? Yes. Well, I talked before about the uh, control tower and the control tower and Yoni's decision not to take out the control tower. His argument was, we don't have enough men. You know, you land a certain number of of soldiers. It can't be that many because they're all coming on the first plane. The the snatch squad, the feeling among special forces often actually is the fewer the better. The fewer things can go wrong if you've got a fewer number of soldiers. But the 
number of soldiers meant that Yoni felt they didn't have enough to take out the control tower and do all the other things, go through all the other various entrances that they had planned to do. None of which, by the way, worked out as they had planned it because, of course, they lost a surprise. But nevertheless, that was Yoni's decision. And he was actually from the control tower that he was shot. So in some small way, he played a part, it's awful to say, from a man who was killed on this operation and he is to this day a great hero in Israel for understandable reasons. But I don't think the true story of Yoni's actions that day have ever really been told. And if, you know, and there, there is a good reason for that, of course, and that, that is the current Prime Minister of Israel has partly based his political career on Yoni's heroism. That Yoni was a hero, I'm in no doubt. That he made mistakes that day, I'm also in no doubt. And uh, it's interesting that even after the surprise was lost, he still decided to take up his position in front of the terminal building in full view of the control tower where he must have known uh, Ugandan soldiers were able to fire from because he wanted to direct the operation. And that, of course, shows extraordinary courage. But maybe it was a bit foolhardy because it was from that position that he was shot. And so in total, a small percentage of the hostages lost their lives in this operation and Yoni Netanyahu of the Israeli forces. But overall, was this viewed as a success back in Israel when they got the vast majority of the hostages home safely? Yes, it was. National outpouring in Israel, tremendous political success for Rabin and Perez because they had taken the bold option and they'd pulled it off. When I mentioned before, up to 20 lives lost, only five were lost, four Israelis, uh, civilians and one uh, soldier. And that was considered to be an extraordinary success. The rest of the Western world uh, also weighed in in its congratulations, although some countries, Britain included, were a little bit cautious about congratulating Israel as opposed to condemning the terrorism. They were, they were, there was, you know, the fault lines of the Cold War were very clear at this point. You know, and, and some people, certainly some British Jews, felt very angry that the British government hadn't been more effusive in its support. The uh, Americans, for example, were much more congratulatory. And interestingly enough, and maybe not surprisingly, the United Nations was split straight down the line, really, between the African countries and the Iron Curtain countries condemning the raid, and then, of course, the West supporting it. Uh, And in fact, almost unbelievably, there was an attempt, at least a motion put in the United Nations, to condemn the actions of Israel in rescuing their unarmed civilians. Uh, And this, of course, was vetoed by uh, the UK and the US in the the Security Council. And so would their counter-argument have been that Uganda was another country that Israel had committed an attack on a sovereign nation, and I, and I guess maybe they didn't know that Ugandan complicity, would that be the counter-argument to what Israel was saying? That's exactly right. The, the argument was made by Uganda itself. Of course, it knew the full story, but it wasn't going to tell anyone, and then all its friends, that this was effectively an undeclared declaration of war on, on Uganda, and a, you know, a most disgraceful bit of behaviour on the behalf of the Israelis. The Israeli counter-argument is that a nation has the right to protect its citizens, even in a foreign country. And that certainly was the argument that was uh, most convincing to the Western world, as you would have imagined it would be. What was the legacy of the Entebbe raid on hijacking and counterterrorism operations in the years to follow? Well, the Entebbe raid emboldened some countries like the United Kingdom and the US into thinking we can deal with the scourge of international terrorism if we train up uh, counter-terrorist forces to a sufficiently uh, high level, one, and two, we actually have the political will to use them. And of course, you see both these things coming together in 1980 with differing results. Uh, In the space of 10 days in 1980, the British launched the rescue of 
hostages in the Iranian embassy siege by the uh, SAS, which is successful. And the Americans tried to do the same thing a few days earlier in Iran, much more difficult operation. In fact, an operation as difficult, if not more difficult than the Entebbe operation, because they're going into a hostile country. That is their own hostages in the American embassy in Tehran, who've been taken uh, taken uh, prisoner by the, the Islamic regime there. And that one fails. But what both of those operations show you is a new uh, willingness to use counter terrorist troops to defeat international terrorism. But not all countries uh, either felt that way then or do today. For example, France has been much more likely to negotiate. The interesting thing about Islamic terrorism, particularly in France now, is that they're beginning to realise that there is no negotiation, actually, and you may as well go in, send the forces in, which and we've seen that in recent times. But only when all bets are off and there is no chance to negotiate does a country like France think, OK, that's the way to go. And you, you could say, well, they've got no option. Um, the other thing Entebbe operation did is it pretty much put an end to the scourge of uh, airplane hijacking in the 1970s. There were one or two more uh, after this, but pretty much this massive scourge, and they'd been up to 80 a year uh, during the late 60s and early early 70s, that's the end of it. Because now the hijackers, stroke terrorists, realise that there is a counter solution to uh, what they thought was an insoluble problem for some of these countries. And did the Arthur of Entebbe lead to any developments in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? The interesting thing is what effect Entebbe had on the wider peace process. And, and there, the jury is very definitely out, and there are two schools of thought. And these schools of thought, interesting enough, were, were suggested to me by Israelis themselves, in fact, by some of the hostages. On the one hand, Israel now feels, given the, the PR success of this operation, that it has the kind of uh, security force capability and intelligence capability of dealing with any threat. Therefore, you don't need to negotiate. You don't need to concede things. And on the other hand, a sense that now we're in a strong position. This is the time at which you negotiate from. Uh, we know that in the 1990s, of course, with the Oslo Peace Accords, both Rabin and Perez were very much in the second group. But we also know that Israel pretty much ever since, not entirely, but pretty much ever since, and certainly the Netanyahu position has, has been to take a much stronger stance, is to build up the security forces and the intelligence capability and to concede very little. Do we know what impact it had on the Palestinian side and the way they thought about the ways they might seek liberation in future? We know that the Palestinians were, were shaken by the Entebbe raid because this was the biggest tool, frankly, in their armory at that point. Uh, that you were putting increasing amounts of pressure on on Israel, forcing them to release increasing number of important political prisoners, terrorists, and that sooner or later they were going to have to come to the negotiating table and the negotiating table would be uh, a situation which would be very beneficial to the Palestinians. So it was quite a shock to the system. And it may actually have uh, caused them to conclude that, that they needed to concede a bit more from their ground because the, the whole point of negotiation is that both sides, as we can see with Brexit, both sides have to concede something. For researching your book, you've spoken to a large number of people who were who were involved either as hostages or some of the leaders or and also some of the people, some of the commanders on the raid. What kind of insights did you get from talking to these people who actually took part in this story? Well, it's one of the privileges, actually, of researching a subject like this, which is within my own lifetime. And in fact, within my own memory, believe it or not, I was 10 at the time of the raid is that unlike normal historical process where you're just dealing with records uh, and the historical record, now we're dealing with actual people who went through it. So you're able to 
question what they might have said before. Say, well, I know you say you were in X, but actually this was going on. Um, the terrorist was a tr- was a tricky problem, of course, because none of them survived. But the next best thing was to find someone who knew them. In fact, the guy I found, Gerd Schnappel, who who is still on the run from German justice in Nicaragua to this day, I was able to interview on Skype. And it was a real insight into not just what they were thinking as a terrorist group, but also into the personalities of the people who were dead. And I found when I was researching the story that actually the the perspective of the terrorists was almost completely missing. We didn't really know who they were. Lots of books actually identify the wrong people. We certainly didn't know what their motivations were and what they were trying to get out of this operation. And we didn't truly understand why the operation was a success, given that surprise was lost halfway through it. It probably should have been a failure. So all of these things were insights that were given to me on the one hand by the terrorists who knew them best. In fact, he was the boyfriend of of Brigitte Kuhlmann, one of the the German hijackers. But also then you get the other side of the story, which is talking to hostages who were in that building at the moment the rescuers came in and could look into the eyes of the terrorists and tell me that they had the chance to kill people and they didn't. You know, you you cannot get that sort of uh, um, proximity to an actual event just by reading someone's account. To actually speak to someone and see the emotion in their eyes, as I did with one of the key hostages, or one of the main um, spokespeople and a person who was right next to the terrorists when the, when the uh, rescuers came in, is, you know, it's a great privilege, but also it's a great insight, frankly. And, and it's what makes near contemporaneous history. And this is the only book I've written of this type of my many books, uh, much more interesting in some ways. And now, of course, there's there's a film which is uh, due to come out. I think it has already been released in some countries, and I know you were, you were heavily involved in that. So it'd be really interesting to know what it's like to work on a big film like this. Yeah, it was. It's been you know a fascinating process, not always uh, enjoyable because I, I don't think any author whose work gets uh, bought or the rights get bought for use in a feature film is ever going to be entirely happy with the process for for obvious reasons. And those obvious reasons are this is a non-fiction book and it's reasonably unusual for a non-fiction book's rights to be bought, although it happens. Uh, But a film is a a feature film. It's a a film in which they are going to take liberties with the truth. Interestingly enough, the the director, Jose Padilla, who made his name with two wonderful films about corrupt policemen in Brazil in, in the 2000s, had always worked on subjects in which he'd done a lot of his own research. You know, they were always heavily based on truth. And therefore, he was a very good director in that sense for this project. But nevertheless, the script does take some liberties. But it was a really interesting insight into the process of filmmaking. Slightly unusual in that they were already thinking of making a film before they bought the rights to my book. But when they got hold of the book, they realized that their original plan, which was to tell the story purely from the perspective of the hijackers and the terrorists, wasn't the most sensible way to do it. Because you've got these two other wonderful strands running side by side, which is the political decision making in Israel and the preparation and planning of the soldiers. And so, like my book, which unfolds day to day, so does the film. So you'll, the film is actually called Seven Days in Entebbe the US version, and and they count down just like my book does from day to day. So the book was very heavily used in the structure of the film, and certainly a lot of the new material, the new information that I provided is in the film. And 
I don't really know how this process works entirely, but would you then come on set sometimes? Would you be getting phone calls and emails saying, Saul, can you verify this fact? Can you tell us a bit more about this? How might this character have behaved in this circumstance? Well, it's quite interesting that they, uh, it's very unspecific. They buy the rights and basically they can do what they like with the book, which is fine. But they also uh, inserted a clause that, that said that I would be credited as a consultant. But there's nothing in the contract to say I need to work as a consultant. But I was interested in the process of the film. And so I was very keen uh, to be involved. Therefore, I, I uh, vetted three versions of the script. So I was able to get get an early look at the script long before, um, of course, the film was actually made. And and so you see how much actually changes during the course of, of various rewrites of a script. Then the new director came in because there was one before Padilla and Padilla has his own version of events. And I went to meet Padilla and he said, look, I've read your book twice already, Saul. I, I love it. We're very much going to base the film on it. Um, you know, I hope that you're always going to be available for any you know, any extra information we need. And I was. I mean, they were ringing me up and asking me questions like, can you tell me what colour the wallpaper, you know, or the walls were painted in the terminal building? And I said, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a picture here. I had very good contacts, of course, in the Israeli military at this point. And I was able to put them in touch with a lot of people. In fact, Padilla himself went to interview a lot of the same people I'd interviewed. He wanted to hear the story from the horse's mouth. He didn't entirely trust my book. But he recently went on the record, I was very pleased to see in an interview in America with what I think one of the um, Hollywood websites in which he said, I wanted to check every facet of Saul's book and it, you know, it, it played out. It was accurate. But good on him for making the effort to fly to Israel to speak to former soldiers, former hostages. He couldn't speak to the terrorists I spoke to because, frankly, I was the last person to be in contact with him. And I think he probably felt after he gave the interview to me, given his current situation, that it might be best if he disappeared into the shadows again. So they weren't able to speak to him, but they were able to do an awful lot of uh, extra research. You know, and you can only applaud him for that. The end result is a very nuanced film, I think, in which the terrorists are humanized much more than you might expect. And that, of course, has made the film very controversial because you can understand that Israelis have said, well, hold on a second, you know, there's, there seems to be a fair bit of sympathy for, for the terrorists. Sympathy is the wrong word. That He's fleshing out who they were, what their motives were, and trying to explain, frankly, the, the seemingly inexplicable in this story, which is that why they took that decision at the last moment. And I think the broader message Padilla's trying to send out in this film is that actually... You can use military force, but that is no long-term solution. And and if that is his argument, and I think it is because he's gone on the record of saying it, I'm four square behind him on that. So as you mentioned, there has already been some controversies about this film, as I think would have been expected, however the film was made in Israel, about the portrayal of, of the terrorists in this case. But do you know how the actual people who went through this story, have any of them seen the film and what they've thought about? Well, uh, he actually had two of the commandos. In fact, the first two commandos through the door on set. He also had on, on set as, as, a, as an, an advisor uh, one of the hostages, in fact, one of the French crew members, who they actually recreate in the film. I mean, they they add dialogue, uh, which he never said. But anyway, he, he is portrayed very heavily in the film in a sympathetic light. Um, they slightly fudge the issue of whether or not they were ever given the chance to leave. Uh, but that aside, it's a very accurate portrayal. So on set, as they were actually going through the rescue scenes, they had two guys who'd been there. So in that sense, they made enormous efforts to try and tell it as accurately as they can. But you do get this terrible conundrum with all feature films, which is that if in the end reality gets in the way of their dramatic purposes, reality will always lose out. So while on the one hand you're trying to sell a film as very authentic, 
there's always a bit of a lie to that because the truth of the matter is that authenticity is always going to lose out to, to drama. And it does at certain instances in this film. That was Saul David. His book, Operation Thunderbolt, is out now in the UK, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And in the US, it's also available, published by Basic Bay Books. And, as I mentioned earlier, the film Entebbe is scheduled to be released in the UK tomorrow, the 11th of May. And it has already been released in several other countries around the world. OK, well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, but please do join us again on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.